Crow talk. Crow talk. Crow talk. Just Just like the men. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our Just Like the Men podcast journey, speaking to women in film about making film. As you know, our film is a true adaptation of two women running for Washington State legislative office in 1912, years before women's suffrage would be passed in 1920. Exciting? Yes. Problematic? Yes. Welcome to our episode with Aaron Jones about racism in American suffrage. I know a place where the sun is like gold and the Chapter 3, Aaron Jones. And down underneath is the loveliest nook where the four-leaf clovers grow. So we understood that the women's suffrage movement was not truly about women. It was about white women. But what really was the catalyst for understanding in more depth what that looked like and how the movement evolved began when we Googled our film. For fun. Because we were so excited. It was done. It was on IMDb. We were on IMDb. It was an exciting time, okay? I'm rolling my eyes. So we Googled just like the men, and the first hit was our profile. The second was our movie website. And then the third was a cartoon emphasizing racism amongst the suffragists that came out in 1913. And it really hammered home how much we don't know on a large scale what this movement looks like. And we really wanted to use this film in whatever way we could to illuminate some really ugly truths that the culture at large doesn't want to look at or acknowledge or investigate. Stacy and I had the privilege of crossing paths with Aaron Jones, actually at the very, very beginning of 2020, oddly enough. The We Ignite conference had approached Stacy and I to run a panel about anything really pertaining to our film. And we decided that we wanted that panel to be about women's suffrage and racism in American women's suffrage. Jermaine Cornegie was the moderator. Sue Vindiola, a Swinomish tribal member from Skagit, was also on the panel. And Aaron Jones as well. Um, and then Stacy and I also sat on the panel, but really we just listened. I think we all, maybe we all do, have a, some understanding of how racist the women's suffrage movement was but I personally didn't really fully understand until we made this film and started delving into what the movement looked like and essentially how white women betrayed black women in order to get ahead to get the vote. So just to recap for those of you listening a really quick nitty-gritty history of black suffrage in America. So the women's rights movement really began as an inclusive movement Black and white women were working together. And it wasn't until the 15th Amendment that white women, including the revered Susan B. Anthony, betrayed the principles of feminism by changing the agenda to exclude women of color, affronted that black men would receive the right to vote before white women. Alice Paul, another suffrage hero, reinforced white supremacy when she asked black suffragists organizations to march in the back of a suffrage parade in 1913. And that's the same year that Ella would have started writing just like the men, like she was working on the film when that march happened. And it's also worth noting that that march is 
the march where a lot of the photographs, if you Google like women's suffrage in America generally, a lot of the photographs that you find of white women are from that parade. I think that when you just scratch the surface of women's suffrage, you don't get the full story. It's very much whitewashed. Like when we talk about the centennial of women's suffrage being in 2020, that that was not for all women. That was for white women. And I, for one, didn't fully understand the scope and wouldn't have if it weren't for this project. Absolutely. Unfortunately, yeah, we just didn't dive deep enough into the research until building the credits and the credits we decided were the place that we would include statistics about racism in our country, which aren't easy to find. None of it's easy. It's tough. There's no easy solution or answer or there's no balm that we can apply that would help the situation as much as we want want there to be one at least for our own comfort but it's the whole point is to sit in this discomfort right totally yes and still releasing this piece of history because just like the men is a piece of history it's a piece of our american racist history and so that's why we wanted to have an episode where we talked to aaron jones who is a woman of color familiar with washington state politics to hear her experience as a, a woman of color, you know, today in modern time. At the panel, she spoke so beautifully to being a black woman in the political landscape in campaigning for office. We're so excited to be able to share our conversation we had with her with the world. Something that you talked about was your experience encountering racism in the Netherlands versus America. And that stuck with me. And I was wondering if you wanted to speak a little more about that whole experience or those probably, you know, two isolated experiences over a lot of time. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I do training on race and justice um, as a professional. That's what I do. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but it's the thing that I'm most passionate about. And, and I believe one of the reasons I'm passionate about it is because I spent my formative years growing up in the Netherlands not ever having to think about race. So I never had to think about, as I walked into a store, am I gonna be followed? I never, I was Aaron first. I was Aaron and then American because I was born in the United States, but I learned to speak other languages really quickly. And so as I traveled across Europe and I'd been to 10 countries by the time I was 14 or 15 as an athlete, um, I wasn't American necessarily. People didn't really know where I was from. And to be honest, I don't think they really cared because I could communicate well with them. And so I never was treated different. I tell people in America now that I know what it is to be white because that's how I was treated um, my formative years until I was 18. And then I came to America at 18 for college um, in 1989. I'll be 50 in a couple months. Yeah, ugh. And very first day we get here and the first line in my college town says, no coloreds or Jews allowed here at the cricket club. So they didn't have a golf club, they had a private cricket club in my college town. And that sign on the main street, no coloreds or Jews allowed here. Right away, I knew, uh-oh, color matters here in a way that I'd never experienced. And that sign, I see your face, that sign didn't come down until 2012. 2012. I was just about to ask the time frame for this. 2012, this was 1989 when I came to America. The sign didn't come down until 2012. So for all y'all out there that think racism is this long ago thing that happened that, you know, the civil rights movement just fixed everything. 
that made this be clear. And uh, there was a long time where I thought I was making up that story in my head. And I have heard now, I sit on a board with a woman who was raised in the same community. And she said, girl, I'm Jewish. And she said, I grew up in that community. And as a Jew, there were places I couldn't go in that community. So I know that is a reality there. I went to college right outside of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But I would say to you that my experiences have not been different from East Coast to West Coast, have not been different. Mm -hmm. You know, Seattle is one of the most, I've experienced more racism in Seattle than anywhere that I've lived in the United States. And, and I would say the reason for that, I just have some theories about this, is Seattle thinks itself more highly than it ought to. And I think one of the greatest dangers is, number one, thinking you're better than you are. We're all human. We're not better than we think we are. Um, number two, we may not be the South, but really the Pacific Northwest was created ideally to be a whites-only space. And a lot of people don't realize that either. Um, the Olympia, the city of Olympia, our state capital was created as a whites-only city, which is part of the reason Tumwater was created by a black man because he was not allowed to live within the city limits of Olympia. <laughs> so let's Holy get shit. real. And that's I Portland know. as well, right? Like Portland was also Portland like a haven, well. like a white haven. Like proud boy haven. And, and I mean, there yes. still are like a lot of collective communities like that yes. in this area too, that because of the like liberal depiction we give ourselves. Yeah, just walking around. Like, think about. like that's exactly what this landscape looks like. And so here's how racism shows up in the Northwest in a very different way. So if I were in Philly, I could be called the N-word, which I was on, on a pretty regular occasion. Um, I was called the N-word. Here in Seattle, it's the more subtle stuff. It's the stuff like, oh, wait, wait, you're running for office? Or, oh, wow, you're really articulate. Like, not expecting, like, you looking like that couldn't possibly. By the way, white folks, you don't own academic English. I'm an educator. I train. I, I should speak academic English pretty fluently. And by the way, I speak Dutch and French and Spanish as well. But it's those really subtle things, the expectation, the reality that we just passed a law in 2019 to allow women to wear their hair like this. I wear what? my hair natural and proud. They had to pass a law in Washington state in the state legislature to not allow discrimination against black women for wearing their natural hair because so many black women in Washington State and primarily in Seattle, we're being told you cannot wear your hair that way. It's not professional. I hate that my mouth is like hanging open. <laughs> I'm just like mouth breathing. Well, it is just that American idea of like sweeping the shit under the rug. Yes, you know, and absolutely. It's like we're taught in school, like, oh, we're past. It's that whole like we're past it. We're past it. So I think putting dates <sighs> on things too is like so crucially important so now. Important as a severe white people reality check of like, wait a minute, this was like, this is like today still that we're talking mm -hmm. about. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, offered too. so I worked for the King County assessor's office and right after I lost my election, I was hired to do some equity work with them. And one of the things they did is they looked at a map of redlining and then they overlaid the map of redlining that took place in Seattle up until the eighties. They overlaid it with who still lives where, and it's, it's almost identical, but even worse, I think, is when they went out to homes to do their, to assess the value and to look at their house notes. If a person had bought their house before the 80s, it could still say in their house notes, cannot be sold to a Negro. In, in Seattle, still today, if you, if you bought your house like in the 50s, 60s, or 70s and haven't sold it, it may still say in your deed 
And and that by itself. And so I tell people all the time, yeah, the danger of Seattle is we don't talk about a thing. Mm-hmm. And and just we just keep I love your your carpet analogy. I use the band-aid analogy. We just keep putting prettier bandages on top of a festering wound. Mm-hmm. And so part of the reason I believe um the Pacific Northwest is the way it is and and still has KKK compounds, by the way, in the Northwest. Nahomish County has one. Um the peninsula has one. Spokane has one. Um, Neo-Nazi groups still in operation all across the Northwest. I believe part of the reason that exists is because we have um, embraced political correctness, which I think is really dangerous. What that means is people say what they want you to hear, but underneath the surface, there's still this dynamic that's very real. It's very, and it's dangerous. It's actually dangerous. It's manipulative. It puts the whole Western expansion of America in a whole new perspective, too. You know, the pioneers coming out here on the in their covered wagons, looking for a new a new place to live. But really, it's just yeah, looking for a white space. Well, and let's just destroy all the indigenous people that live here too. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, that's like, the other. That's the other piece too. So terrifying. Invisibilization of our Native Americans. And, and I think we only count 29 of the federally, uh, there's only 29 federally recognized tribes in Washington state, but the numbers of others that are not federally recognized. So we've now just washed them away completely. And so, I mean, I think it is really interesting, this this mentality that as white men, I'm just gonna say, and I, I'm, I am not saying all white men are bad. Not, I don't want people to hear this, but I do want us to hear that as a group of people, white men in that time, just said, well, this man is ours. Like we're just gonna, oh. we're just gonna take over because we own in our minds. Like nobody else who's here is as valuable, and we deserve this. And we, if we work hard enough, we're gonna take over. And and just that mentality has not stopped really in a lot of ways. And I think mm-hmm. about, you know, how business, whether it's Amazon or Google or whatever, just all the ways that those things can creep up and overtake us. Um, without any interrogation about what is it doing to the people who are already here? Who is being harmed by this? Who's be, who's benefiting? I think about Bezos and I don't know Bezos personally, but I find it really problematic that during a pandemic when so many people have lost so much that he has gotten even more wealthy than oh my gosh. he was already. So right. Right? Well, and there's and, all those accusations and is there a lawsuit even about yeah, the mistreatment uh-huh. of his employees during mm-hmm. Pandemic and like endangering yeah. them by the work conditions, and I'm like totally a part of that, perpetuating that wealth because right. I've been at home, and I have a freaking Amazon Prime, you know, yeah. account. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, uh yeah, capitalism comes into this. Obviously, there's so yeah. much intersection here. Well, and it's just interesting. Yeah, I. I you know, I grew up in a social democracy. The Netherlands is a social democracy. And um, I never saw a homeless person ever. I, in fact, that's mm-hmm. not true. When I was in high school, there was a professor who decided to be homeless for a year. And he lived in a tent outside of our big city um, train station. We have a huge central station in The Hague, the Netherlands. And he chose to live on a corner and just see what would it be like to live homeless? How would people treat him? And and that was my experience of homelessness. And then I came to the United States in 1989 and the homelessness in Philadelphia was just atrocious. But let's look at Seattle. Let's look at Olympia. Let's look at, and so, you know, again, that capitalism versus, oh, those bad socialists. 
um, I just, I really struggle. I really struggle with um, some of the dynamics. And I think that oftentimes too, a lot of Americans don't travel. So in their minds, America is great because we've told ourselves we're fabulous and great. And too many people haven't seen other things. And so there's nothing really to compare it to except movies. And, and that's not mm -hmm. enough. You need to be able to be immersed in other things. And, and I think it's one of the reasons I do love America. You know, I could have gone home and chose to stay in America, but I love her in such a way that I am willing to critique her. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a heavy critic, but I'm also part of the solution. Uh, and, and I really believe that if we truly love a thing, we have to be willing to critique it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we have not. Um, there's such there's such an unwillingness to critique mm -hmm. America. And I, I think especially in the last four years, one of the most dangerous things I've seen is this idea that patriotism means that we only elevate the really beautiful things about America. And, and often those beautiful things only serve a particular population. I really believe will only be a great America when everyone has the opportunity to experience um, flourishing and we're not all flourishing. Mm -hmm. and, and some people are, are just barely surviving and, and, and that just is not a great place yet. And my husband was reading um, a little message that was sent by the Norwegian government out to people last week, I think. And it said, you know, come home if you're in any country that doesn't have a, a fleshed out medical system and America was one of the, the United States was listed as one of those. If you're a, a Norwegian national living in the United States, come home. And and we're wow. supposed to be the greatest nation on the planet. And yet here's Norway sending a plea, come back because we just don't trust that you're going to be well cared for in the United States I mean, of America. In, this, in Bellingham, because we're so close to the Canadian border, if you listen to Canadian radio, there used to be an ad and it was an American doctor holding a Canadian by the ankles wringing the change out of their pockets you know it was a radio ad so you could only hear it yeah. but uh just saying like hey do you need protection just like crossing the border in america medically you know and that was just something that like played on the radio like numerous times and even you know it's just like it was a spot on the radio all the time and yeah i think like i would have never heard anything like that if i wouldn't have lived so close mm -hmm. to the border so it's another one of those ignorance is bliss in america kind of situations mm -hmm. where there's just not exposure to yeah we're a product of the story we're like yeah. so susceptible that's like where we're forming our identity and so our identity is a lie and that is so dangerous it's like ishmael that book about the gorilla have either of you read ishmael i haven't read it but i've heard about it i don't There's, know if i have it's like a gorilla like teaches a white man things about the world like through the gorilla's perspective but there's an anecdote about how the man in the story wrote like rewrote the history of the nazis and then how people were immersed in that and were like wait a minute something feels off here and it was a glorified rewriting of the history of the nazis mm, and mm -hmm. i think about that so often when it comes to the story of america and the things we were taught and and the things we weren't taught <laughs> mainly that like the things we were yeah. not taught mm -hmm. in schools because it's that same idea of like painting mm -hmm. this gross delusion. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I don't know if either of you have read the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, but I think every American needs to read the book because she, I mean, you're bringing up the Nazi, um, Nazi Germany. Really the book is about how our, kind of the way that our culture was set up, it was set up, in a very similar structure to India and to Nazi Germany. 
And and what's interesting is the Nazis took a lot of cues from the United States and how they did Jim Crow. And, and there were some places where, um, I mean, she uses firsthand accounts from officers in the Nazi army who talked about, you know, America's gone a little too far here. We're not going to go this far. And, and just to read that and realize we love to vilify the Nazis. And yet, in a lot of ways, we've done so much more harm to our own people. Right. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, the Nazi regime, obviously, well, was a shorter period than we think about slavery and, and the genocide of indigenous people, which happened over hundreds of years. Um, but we love to vilify the Nazis. And I'm not saying the Nazis are good because I think what they did, having grown up in the Netherlands, I don't have a Dutch friend that didn't lose family members in Auschwitz. So I have a lot of feelings about Germany mm -hmm. and I have a lot of feelings about the United States, too, because. We have just, um, we love to tell the story in a particular way. And I think, mm -hmm. I think actually it's doing all of us harm. I don't think it's just doing black and brown people harm. I think it's doing white men a lot of harm too, because they are living a lie. And, mm -hmm. and I think that is manifesting itself now in ways that we haven't seen before. And that to me is very sad because I think we could be a really great nation. We could be, I think we are a good nation. I think we could be an amazing nation if we were willing to face our realities and do something to fix them. This is something that I've heard from from people in Germany is that talking about that is is a part of the culture, you know. And yeah. so this this conversation about truth is coming up again and not you know, not shoving it under the rug. The rug is gone. You yeah, know, and, this and is just, something that we all have to talk and confront in our public education. Or they have to confront and talk about in their public education. And discussing like propaganda and how that's used. And like, I worked with a German woman and she talked about that a lot during the Trump administration as they were like, before he had gotten elected, but she talked, she just often was like, oh my God, this is like the exact same as Nazi propaganda. And it was so easy for her to pick out, of course, because of the way she was raised in Germany was calling that out so frequently mm -hmm. now in their yeah. modern culture today. Yeah, the story yeah. is so carefully crafted, which which is what we encountered and still encounter with just like the men we want to, you know, we've made this movie that's about these two white women running for office in Washington state in a white community, in a white community. And even just trying to market the film and talk to people about the film, it's the women's suffrage movement is so generalized in a way that, you know, it's, I think it's meant to make it easy to talk about, but it's this fictional narrative that, completely erases the truth which is so effed up how white women used black women to get ahead i guess the name just like the men is pretty appropriate but yeah i mean especially well i guess for the time now too i was gonna say especially for the time with especially white men for the time it's just like yeah it's just really uh, it shouldn't be so troubling but it is. What's interesting, it's interesting, last year um, during the Black Lives Matter marches, I can't remember her name now, but I want to say she's a spoken word artist who did an interview after a march and talked about, um, man, white America, you should be happy. We actually don't want to do to you what we, what you've done to us. We just want an equal part in, in things. And I think that is so true. I think that there's this narrative that if Black people could be on top, they would just take over stuff and treat and that's, I've not yet met a black person who's an advocate who wants that actually. Um, but that's what oftentimes what white women have done is 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we link arms when it's when it's convenient, and then we're just gonna toss you under the bus. Yeah. Um, so we can get ours. So we're gonna talk about racial equity. We're gonna talk about racial justice. We want diversity, but at first opportunity, I'm gonna throw you under the bus, and we're not gonna give you a platform. And 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 and, you know, that's one of the things that I experienced when I ran for office. And mm-hmm. um, fortunately, I've had the opportunity to work things out and to reconcile with some people. Um, but that was painful. And and mm-hmm. what I learned running for office is I didn't know which white women to trust because mm-hmm. the most liberal white women were actually the most dangerous. And of all my black friends who've ever run for office, all of them would say that, that it's not the conservative white women they were ever afraid of. It was the most liberal hmm. white women who said, we're your allies. They were the ones that would shove a knife in our back at first sign. Those mm-hmm. were the ones that were the most dangerous. And I think mm-hmm. um, that is something that needs to be talked about. And why does that happen? And um, and what I would say to them is, y'all, stop talking about being my ally. Like if that, just mm-hmm. don't talk about that anymore. Like do the work. Stop, stop signaling. Stop changing your your Facebook profile to Black Lives Matter or whatever. Like just do you. I don't I don't want you to come out as being my ally and then keep perpetuating this really horrible behavior. But there's a Seattle thing. There's a Northwest thing that is just a pattern of behavior that I've seen in a lot of places. And it's not just me. I mean, our, my black friends who run for, have run for office and have won elections have all said exactly the same thing. Well, I'm glad we're illuminating it in this little corner of the world. And, mm-hmm. and it doesn't take much to to find all this out. Yeah. You know, with the, the smallest bit of digging, it feels small that we've done it's all right there it's very clear it's not confusing it's very easy to see what the truth is and how women the the women's suffrage movement panned out and how but i will say it is wild like when you google it like for the credits in our film erin we went through like the history of suffrage and when voting rights were available to all women Um, that is confusing and that was very true because white people are curating this information yeah so it was super upsetting it was really hard actually to find like good valid sources of that information which is terrifying that's scary that you can't even Mm -hmm. like and you have to be so specific in the search it's not just like you can be like women's suffrage in america no Mm -hmm. you'd have Mm -hmm. to be like black women's suffrage in america chinese Mm -hmm. women's suffrage in america like every single group I would have to like specifically suss out. And it wasn't like the first click either that was giving me these answers. So and that goes back to who runs the academy too, right? So who's doing right. research on things? Who's in the academy? And the academy, I'm in higher education and all the profs and PhDs that are doing research on this stuff. Like we are not in the academy for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not where we go. And in fact, I need to get a, a PhD at some point, but I... Like I watched some of my friends and what you have to give up and just the ways that some of my black and brown friends have been terrorized trying to get their degrees. And so there are lots of reasons we don't go into the academy. Um, It changes people. And so, but what it means then is that certain things don't ever get investigated. They don't get researched. And so the people, again, driving the story are the same people who've always driven the story. And so we get the Mm -hmm. same stories, even though there's another truth under the bandage if we were to unearth it. Last year, we got to sit in on a 
conversation with black people about racism, institutionalized racism in America. And I thought that was pretty impactful because they basically at the beginning were like, hey, white people, don't talk to us after this. Don't react. Don't react. Don't like clap. we're <laughs> Don't perform. Yeah, because we're, you know, feeling vulnerable in front of yeah. a white audience discussing white people as if you weren't in the room. So like, just zip it, listen. And I thought that was really, and there was like instances, Aaron, of, of black professionals on like the professor level. One of the panelists uh, was a professor and she spoke to that a lot, just how difficult it even was on that level on like the teaching level as a person of color and specifically a black woman. So I would love to see more of that too, just like conversations with black people, like yeah. white people aren't in the room. And it's also not safe for us. I want to think about that too. So if you have to get tenure from those same people, right, what you say on a platform like that could cost you tenure. Mm -hmm. It could cost you that next job. It could cost you. And so as soon as, and it's one of the beauties for me of not having been elected, that I can say these things and not work. Uh, to be honest, I don't care about getting another J-O-B. I'm, I'm, I just am not, but that gives me a certain freedom to be honest about these things and to talk about them in a way that some of my friends can't and they can't be on stages because this, in a small environment like Washington State, if you're painted as an angry black woman or an angry black man, you could not get a job. Like you, you may be, like, I have a friend in particular who had to move to Atlanta to get a job because, and he's not an angry black man at all, but because he spoke truth and he asked questions about things, he was he was painted. I mean, I, he would send me his evaluation and the things that were said in his, I, I, I walked through buildings with him. He was an administrator in a school building in a district that shall remain nameless. And I watched how kids loved this man. I would walk into the building and little kids would run up and hug his leg and he worked in an elementary school. But the things that were said by his white principal, so he was the assistant principal, she was a white woman principal. The things that were said about him were so horrific and I knew they weren't true because I'd seen him enough on the job. I, see, I saw how he interacted with his peers or with the teachers. I saw how he interacted with students. I'm like, that is, he threatens you. He threatens you and because of that, he couldn't get a principal job. And he ended up being hired as a principal down in Atlanta and now has won like every award that you could win in his district. And, but that's the reality that there's a chance you take as a black person in particular, when you speak up, even if you do it in a quiet tone, as soon as you speak up, you are painted as angry and how dare you, how dare you question authority? How dare you? And, and so people don't speak up and it's not because they don't have things to say. It's just not safe. Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous place. And when they have spoken up, historically, all the proof is there. It doesn't end well. Right. Because we're not living in a truth-based society. Correct. Correct. So much work to be done. <laughs> There's so much work. I know. I'm just like, I have yeah, inappropriate right laughter and my mouth is just like hanging open. One day at a time. Yo, really? I mean, I stay in this work because it's so important. And yeah, I have four to seven events every day wow, every day amazing. this work is that it's that important to get into as many spaces as possible and and lovingly push people mm -hmm. um into some conversations that need if we're going to get better it's necessary we've got to have these conversations and we have to be willing to be critiqued and to critique ourselves and to be reflective and 
to think about what is the what is the impact of my actions and and am I leaving this world a better place um, or am I leaving myself am I more worried about myself than I am about those around me and and if we're going to get better we have to care about everyone around us and not just ourselves and um, I think we've seen the manifestation of what happens when one person just cares about themselves it hurts a whole country well we know that you're not necessarily running for office we're so sad nope. so we hope one day we can vote for you in whatever way we can or just continue yeah. to like hear you speak and like appreciate just that impact too yep so whether i run for office again at some point or not i i want to be in spaces that make a difference and like i just was on a call with the state school director so all the school board directors um i'll be speaking at their conference um on wednesday i speak with the state um the Board of Education. So all the places that I wanted to have influence, I have influence now on my own terms, which is kind of beautiful. That is um, really so, beautiful. And so it makes, amazing. I don't know, it, I'm glad to know that you're out there advocating for our education in this state and everything, you know, and speaking truth that's not necessarily like sponsored truth. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just and nobody truth. can tell me what I can say and what I can't say. And and there are times when I make mistakes about things and I own that. And, um, but I also am able to be really honest about things. And I'm also close to the ground. So one of the things I've, I've stayed true to even before I ran for office, but after I ran for office is I have kids in my space. So I'm around students every week. Mm-hmm. I'm around students at least four or five times a week. So I'm also listening to our young people, which a lot of people in office are not doing. They're not listening to the young people who are most impacted by decisions they're making. And so I stay close to the ground. I have a group of young people that I meet with every Monday night, every Wednesday, and I teach a class every Friday just so that I'm staying close to the ground and listening to people. And I wish more leaders were, I don't think I'm so awesome. I just think if I want to make impact, I have to be listening to the people that are being impacted and, um, and then use their voices to bring to the voices of power and because I ran for office, I know all the people in power. So that's the advantage of having run for office. And even though I lost, I did well. And so I still have credibility. And it means that I can get into rooms with people like the governor, with people like, well, pretty much anybody, any superintendent, any principal. I can get into the room with them because I ran for office. And now I get to now carry with me the voices of young people and their families. And that feels like an incredible privilege and an honor. We are such huge fans of Erin. Holy moly, she inspires the shit out of us. And I think she does truthfully with anybody she connects with. So thank you, Erin, for taking the time. She was in Las Vegas on a vacation with her husband, like a surprise getaway PS when she recorded that with us. So thank you so, so much for being you and for taking time to talk to so many people about these issues all we can continue to do is feel really uncomfortable like this have these conversations like face to face and continue to learn and hopefully our american education system through these black Lives matter movements and i'm sure the ones to come because there will be more will illuminate the truth of our country and will take that rug out and throw it in a dumpster (laughs) Be sure to check out our show notes if you want some more information about women's suffrage and what we're talking about here. And join us on our next episode where we talk about money.
fundraising, and indie filmmaking, wherein we chat with the CEO and founder of Seed and Spark. Really great conversation, a lot of great information, so stay tuned. Bye-bye. If you work, if you wait, you will find the place where the four-leaf clovers grow. Where the four-leaf clovers grow. Where the four-leaf clovers grow. I think we should do like maybe one or two more times. Okay, cool.